Hi, I'm Brody. I'm Layton. And you're listening to History Goes Bump. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 249th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On this episode, we are going to our old stomping grounds in Denver, Colorado, to the Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design. This was suggested to us by our listener, Kate Wilker, who is currently attending that school. And she will be joining us shortly to talk a little bit about the history and about some of the hauntings going on there. Denise, you know, it's actually not in Denver. It's in Lakewood, which is a suburb of Denver. And you know Lakewood pretty well. I sure do. That's where my very first grown-up job was. I worked at American Express Travel there in in Lakewood. And that's where I met my very first uh, roommate. We worked together in Lakewood. And so I spent a lot of time in that area. Before we get into talking about the college, we'd like to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Crystal with a CH. Hello, Crystal with a CH. Melva. Hey, Melva. Sam. Hi, Sam. Jess. Hi, Jess. Macy. Hello, Macy. Mal. Hi, Mal. Denise. Hello, Denise. Great name, huh? I like it. And Aaron with two A's. Hey, Aaron with two A's. And now, this moment, Noddity. And the moment in Oddity was suggested by listener Nicole Dixon. Jacksonboro in Georgia was once the county seat of Screven, but today nobody would know that it had ever existed, save for one house, the Seaborn Goodall House. Lorenzo Dow was a traveling preacher, and when he arrived in Jacksonboro, he expected the local folk to be very welcoming. After all, this was the South, known for its hospitality. But he found the townspeople to be quite the opposite. They were cold and rude. Seaborn Goodall was different. He invited Dow to come stay at his house. Dow's first sermon in town drew a large crowd, and he thought perhaps he had misjudged everyone. However, the people were not there to worship, and soon Dow figured out that they were all drunk. They cursed him and screamed for him to leave town. Dow decided that he should do just that, and he shook the dust of the town from his feet and called out an internal curse on Jacksonboro. That curse declared that no business would prosper and that all the homes would eventually be destroyed, except for the home of Seaborn Goodall. Soon, fires sprung up, the creek flooded the town, and mysterious winds ripped roofs off of the homes. Houses not destroyed by natural disasters just literally fell to the ground. Once prosperous stores were forced to close when they began to lose money. The only thing that managed to stand was the bridge. Every home was gone except for one the house of Seaborn Goodall. The house remained unburned, unflooded, and undamaged. Through it all, his home stood solid, and the house still stands over 160 years later, while any other attempt to establish residences or businesses has failed. And that certainly is odd. 
Creepy makes history more delicious. And now, This Month in History. In the month of March, on the 25th in 1807, the British Parliament abolished the slave trade. Earlier bills had failed, but a new effort was put forth in 1806 with the Foreign Slave Trade Abolition Bill. The bill would prevent the import of slaves by British traders into territories belonging to foreign powers and was introduced by the Attorney General, Sir Arthur Leary Piggott. The bill passed Parliament on March 23, 1806 and was sent to the House of Lords. Lord Grenville, who was the Prime Minister, read the bill making it official policy. After a second reading, it was agreed to 100 votes to 34. The bill then moved to the House of Commons. Wilberforce, who was an abolitionist that had fought to end the slave trade for 18 years, received a standing ovation during the debate over the bill. That debate lasted 10 hours, and the House voted in favor of the bill by 283 votes to 16. The bill received royal assent on March 25th, and the slave trade was finished forever for Britain. The city of Lakewood is a suburb of Denver, Colorado. There was never a traditional downtown in the city, but there was a central business area along Colfax Avenue, and it became home to the Jewish Consumptives Relief Society, which treated patients suffering from tuberculosis. When TB was no longer a threat, the property was opened as the Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design. The college offers a curriculum in animation, photography, graphic design, fine arts, and fashion design, but it also offers something else, ghosts. There have been many reports of supernatural activity on the campus, and one of the people who has experienced that is our listener, Kate Wilker. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design. The town of Lakewood was platted on July 1st, 1889 by Charles Welch and W.A.H. Loveland. Hmm, another name of a Colorado city. Yes. Suppose it was named for him. Loveland was the president of the Colorado Central Railroad, and he was ready to retire. He wanted to find a new area to build his estate and chose a spot in an area west of Denver along Colfax Avenue. Soon, Lakewood became a place where the rich would build their summer estates. An electric tramway arrived in 1893 and spurred the development of Lakewood by connecting it with Denver and Golden. This was called The Loop. The late 1800s would see a large influx of Jews, and they would soon need a place to take care of their numbers that contracted tuberculosis. And for any of you beer drinkers out there, you might be familiar with Golden, Colorado, because that's where the Coors Brewery is located. That is quite true. Eastern European Jews had started arriving in Denver in 1870, and they were followed in the 1880s by Russian Jews. Russia was a place of discrimination and economic hardship at that time, and they saw new opportunities in America. They referred to America as the Goldina Medina, which is golden land in Yiddish. And for anybody who speaks Yiddish, I'm sure my pronunciation was not what you would expect, so I do apologize. The West promised even more possibilities, and they headed for Colorado, with most of them settling in a West Side immigrant enclave along the Platte River. Okay, I can't help it. This is my home stomping grounds, but the Platte River also had an amazing coffee shop called Paris on the Platte, which was closer to Denver, and I loved it. It was 
I guess Diane would classify it as a little bit of a hippie <laughs> gathering, but they had all mismatched furniture. They had like lattes and, you know, hummus plates and stuff like that before this was like the yuppie thing to do or the hipster thing to do. It was definitely before Starbucks, before Starbucks, they would have live music. You'd sit down on the plat and it was just I said mismatched furniture, old furniture and books. So people would just sit there and read and talk about like philosophy or whatever. It was a great, great place. Yeah, sounds like hippies to me. Well, and sadly it closed. It made me sad. And I know along the Platte River, they have a great trail for riding and running. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a great area that they built up now. That's probably why Paris on the Platte could no longer stay there because it became prime real estate. Now, of course, Colfax is not, wouldn't be our old stomping grounds, especially... Was it West Colfax or East Colfax? East Colfax was a little bit more interesting. (laughs) But it actually was my old stomping ground because that's where Emporium of Design, where I got my tattoos, was located. That's where I got my tattoo as well. And that's where the Pride Parade always was. So, yes, I guess we did hang out on Colfax a lot. But we tried to stay away from the area where some of the ladies of the evening would be hanging out. Well, we met at a bar on Colfax, Miss... Oh, that's true. We did, didn't <laughs> so, we? <laughs> she says we did not. We didn't go to Colfax. Yeah, our whole beginning of our life was pretty much centered on Colfax. Oh my God, I pretty much lived on Colfax then because I that bar was like my second home. How funny! I didn't even remember that it was on Colfax. Yeah, and but neither one of us were working girls. Nothing. No <laughs> offense to any of them. We were working, but not in that way. <laughs> Back to our immigrants, they worked as shopkeepers and peddlers and founded the first synagogue on West Colfax. Denver's Newsies were mostly young Jewish kids, and they would hawk the papers on street corners. West Colfax was soon almost exclusive Jewish businesses, and so was very similar to New York's Lower East Side, although Dr. Maurice Fishberg, head physician for the United Hebrew Charities of New York, asserted in 1904 that the homes of the poor living here in Denver's West Colfax area are, as a rule, tidy and clean, nothing like the overcrowding seen in Jewish quarters in New York or Chicago. The environment here looks more like that of the average small western town than like a Jewish district of Europe. At this time in the early 1900s, the West Colfax Jewish neighborhood experienced an influx of Jews who were sick with tuberculosis. As most of us already know, TB was the leading cause of death in the United States at that time, and people from all walks of life moved to Colorado with the hope that the dry climate would heal their lungs. As a matter of fact, that's why my family moved there, not because of tuberculosis, but I had asthma. So we moved from California, which was so smoggy, to the better climate of Colorado, which it was better than California, but I have found that Florida is even better than Colorado. So, And a fun fact is, even though we did not know each other at all, Diane and I both moved to Colorado the exact same year. That we did. We were slightly different ages. That's because I am older and wiser. <laughs> Colorado would come to be known as the World Sanatorium. No public sanatoriums existed at the time, and so private organizations built institutions. The Jewish community founded National Jewish Hospital for Consumptives in 1899. All patients were treated free of charge at the hospital, and its motto was, none may enter who can pay, none can pay who enter. And we know National Jewish quite well. Yes, they are an amazing hospital there in Colorado, and they are the ones that treated my mom for years and years and years with her uh, COPD, so it's a great hospital. The drawback with National Jewish was that it only treated early-stage TB, and it didn't have a kosher kitchen. So a group of Jewish working-class immigrants in the West Colfax neighborhood banded together in 1903 and formed the Jewish Consumptives Relief Society, or JCRS. 
This sanatorium would treat patients in all stages of the disease. The hospital was built on the future home of the Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design. Many prominent Jewish East European physicians joined the society. The most important of these men was Dr. Charles Spivak. He was born in Russia, Ukraine, and immigrated to America, where he worked in factories early on. He eventually went on to medical school, specializing in gastroenterology. He and his wife moved to Denver for her health, and one of his first major contributions to the medical community was to form a medical library of sorts. He devised a procedure called the Union Catalog Plan. This listed where all the medical books in Denver were and when they were available for research. He joined the JCRS when it opened in 1904 and became its number one advocate. There were initially seven patients, and they were housed in the white wooden tent cottages so that they would have plenty of fresh air. The JCRS's motto was, He who saves one life saves the world. 10,000 patients would seek care at the JCRS over the following 50 years, and none of them were charged. In 1954, the institution changed its mission to cancer research, becoming the American Medical Center. The Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design, or RMCAD, was founded in 1963 by Philip J. Steele, an artist and teacher. The college relocated several times to keep up with its growing student population. In 2003, the college moved to the larger 23-acre campus in Lakewood and uses several buildings from the sanatorium days. Full Sail University purchased a controlling share of the college from the Steele family in 2010 and moved most of the liberal arts courses online. The RMCAD campus has been designated as a National Historic District and has 17 structures on the property. Because of its past as a place where many people came to die, it seems that some of that past energy has remained today, and students and staff have reported many strange occurrences through the years. Our listener, Kate Wilker, is a student at that college, and she joins us to share stories about these experiences. Well, we are joined by Kate Wilker, and she had suggested to us our location, which is the Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design. This is located in Lakewood, Colorado. How are you, Kate? I'm doing well. How are you, Diane? Fabulous. Well, this is our old stomping ground, as everybody knows, so I was very excited to see that we had a location suggested from Colorado, not only anywhere in Colorado, but the general area where we had lived. But I don't ever remember seeing the Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design. Where is it located in Lakewood? So it's just uh, about a mile outside of Denver to the west. So it's off of Colfax. West Colfax is the neighborhood, as they call it. So yeah, just back there, kind of seated on Colfax and Pierce Street, behind Casa Bonita, actually. So I know that's a big landmark. Yep. People know, generally. You listen to our podcast, which means you must have a little bit of interest in the paranormal. What got you interested in the paranormal to begin with? I just feel like uh, I've always been intrigued by it as a child. And I don't know, I, I'm not sure what I exactly believe, but I, I feel like there must be something. I don't know. I just think it's fascinating to learn about. Have you ever had any of your own experiences yet? Maybe a few, but I, it was just at Girl Scout camp when I was young. So I might have just been, you know, a little <laughs> bit scared. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's after everybody's told their stories and then everything sounds like a monster. Exactly, exactly. Especially at camp. So, How long have you been in Colorado? Um, I've been in Colorado since I was about six years old. So most of my life, I grew up in Colorado Springs. Now I currently live in Denver as an artist and I attend school at uh, Rocky Mountain College for Art and Design. Yeah, I love it here. I love Denver very much. It's great. We have something in common. I moved to Colorado when I was six, too. <laughs> oh, wow. Very cool. Yeah. So what are you studying there? I'm studying 
fine art. That's my degree. I'm a photographer and a videographer. Yeah, just kind of experimental things, fine art photography, fine art video. So it's really fun and I enjoy it. Can you describe to us a little bit about the campus? Is it newer buildings, older buildings, about the size? So the campus is actually small, but uh, they have, I want to say, like almost eight buildings on there. The buildings are all older. So basically, the campus itself was like it was built in the early 1900s. I think I wrote down 1899 is when like the campus opened as a place for people to go with tuberculosis. Um, it was opened by the Jewish Consumptive Relief Society. They wanted to open a campus for people struggling with tuberculosis that couldn't pay for like other treatment and other sanatorium places in Denver. So they opened it up to anybody, nobody turned away. And that was in like 1900. Since then, the campus has definitely changed a lot, but there's a lot of the original buildings still standing. Like the main building, the Texas building was like the hospital part of it. And it's in great shape. They've really like taken care of it and preserved it. It is preserved to the, by the National Historic Society, I want to say. I'm not sure like the official name, but it is a historic site in Colorado. So it's really well kept and preserved. I know I saw a picture that had, it looks like a little, I'm sure it's supposed to be a piece of artwork, but it kind of looks like a kid's jungle gym that you would climb around on. Do you know what I'm describing? <laughs> Yeah, the dome. So, what, what building um, dome is that outside is, of? That's outside of the Texas building, the main okay. building I was just talking about. Yeah, that was the hospital. And the dome actually has to do with the founder of the Rocky Mountain College School. They bought the campus later. The school wasn't founded until 1963 by a guy named Phil, Phil J. Steele. The story about the dome is that he came from like a artist collective super unique. They had like their own like plot of land and they would build these like film structures to live in. So I think that's just kind of part of his legacy. And then he brought that to the campus. So now it's kind of like a landmark for the school. Well, when you were talking about how one of the buildings had been a hospital and then you said the Texas building, I went, when I saw that picture, that kind of looked like a hospital building to me. So I'd wondered if that was the case. And sure enough, it is. Yep. Yeah, it's the main hospital. There's actually two large buildings at either end of the campus, and one of them isn't by the school. One of them is actually like a rehab facility. It's on the other end, but they're pretty similar buildings. They were both, one of them was the hospital, and one was the women's because they had to separate them back then. So, so yeah, it was quite interesting. Well, I thought it was fascinating when you had suggested this location because I was thinking, <laughs> well... I mean, how old can it be? Because I'm imagining this designer building. Because when you think of an art school, that's kind of what you picture. And so I went in and looked up stuff. And then I went, wait a minute, there was a Jewish sanatorium here? Holy cow. And of course, we know that those tend to lead to hauntings. And that's why you said this would be a good place to check out because there's some stuff going on here. Yeah, definitely. They, I took a ghost tour in October. Like every year they have like a really cool little like thorough tour and tell you you know the history of the school and also like the ghost history which is fun and basically the school is just has so many secret little things like there's tunnels underneath the entire campus that actually go all the way out to Colfax Avenue mm -hmm. which is like a block so they're quite interesting and 
during the ghost tour, we were able to like take a tour down there and go into these like narrow old dirt tunnels with like all the boilers and everything in there. It was really, really cool. And yeah, there are a lot of stories that are, that have been told and taken place on that campus. It's really funny. With those tunnels that you're describing that go out to Colfax, I've heard of tunnels at sanatoriums like between buildings, but to have it actually going out to Colfax, do they know why it did that? Yeah, actually, because in the winter, when it would be too snowy for the patients out or like above ground, they could, or like, you know, anybody, patients, visitors, whatever, they could like take the tunnel out to the main road. The campus, like now, is very accessible because we have like a paved everything, but back then it wasn't so, the campus was more like isolated, I guess you could say, than Mm -hmm. it is now. There was a little bit too much distance, I guess. And so it was just available for like patients checking out, doctors, visitors coming in and out, everything like that. So, All right. So let's hear some of the stories that they were talking about and what buildings they say that they are reputedly happening in. There's a lot, but I guess I could start with the tunnels. So they've had people come in and mediums and I'm sure that I'm pretty sure they've had like ghost teams come in with like the cameras and the sensors and everything. And those are actually pretty private. Uh, They wouldn't really like disclose too much about it, but they have said like in the tunnels and even the maintenance workers, like we had a mate, we talked to a maintenance worker and he has worked there for years and years for the school. And he says like, he's seen things down there, usually just in the tunnels, the occurrences people run into are usually, they say, like, nurses in all, like, white, all white outfits, kind of like a very old, you know, early 1900s mm-hmm. traditional nurse outfit. And it's really interesting because they say they'll see it out of the corner of their eye and they'll look back and, like, they, the ghost or the figure will have just, like, rounded the corner or will be almost, like, following them. Kind of just not really, like, harmful, nothing really, like, spiteful or anything, just a really... Kind of like they're working almost is what the maintenance worker said, kind of just like going from building to building, maybe like in somewhat of a rush. So that's a little bit creepy. And they say at night being down there, it gets really weird and scary. And there's lots of like foreign noises. So we have a auditorium. It's very small, but it's original. It's very like art deco designed. And the theater is super classic. Uh, original seats, everything. And you can really see, like, you can really feel the dating when you're in there just by everything. There's apparently a theater ghost there, um, like a woman. She, as apparently, she dresses in fishnets and, like, a flapper outfit. But she's, I think they said she was wheelchair-bound. And they say she can be a little bit obnoxious <laughs> and, like, taunt people, almost. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, they say that they're speculating that she was like a patient who wanted to be a performer at some point. And, you know, in the afterlife, she hangs out on the stage area and dresses up and just kind of lives out her, her never granted dream. <laughs> kind of sad, but also cool. She's also harmless. But I think I've heard like that ghost can be a little bit taunting, which is quite funny. There's a story. So I mentioned earlier, there's two big buildings at either end of the campus, but one of them is separated the total campus because it's owned by a different private. So there's a men's and a women's hospital, and 
there was a nurse who, and this is like a real thing that happened, actually. It was written about and it was made, they had like a little newspaper for the entire campus at the time. So it was written about in there. Basically, there's a man who obviously was dying from tuberculosis and the classic story, he fell in love with his nurse, and but she didn't love him back. So I guess he got temporarily better and left the campus for a number of years and then he got older and he it got worse again. So he decided to go to the campus to like live out his days and the nurse that he loved was still there. So he continued trying to pursue her and she just would not, she did not want to be with him or anything. So finally, they transferred the nurse to, I think they transferred him to the women's hospital, the other end of the campus, so they never saw each other. But one day, right outside this building called the Rotunda Building, it basically under a tree, the patient ran into the nurse and came up with a scheme and he shot her because she would not go on a date with him. So there was an actual murder on the campus, which is quite unsettling. I haven't heard any ghost reports from like that specifically, but I'm sure, you know, when psychics and people that are in touch with that come on their campus, I'm sure there's some kind of creepy Energy. vibe, especially. Sure. Yeah, for sure. And like they showed us the tree that it's like the exact spot it happened. And it was quite a tragedy. I mean, obviously meaningless, but mm-hmm. it's too bad. But, but just yeah, because she wouldn't the, go out but, with them. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Classic case of just like the nice guy taking it too far. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> yeah. And obviously there are a lot of other deaths on campus that were more like natural well due to the sickness but that was like a big deal with the murder and then i'm pretty sure that guy was locked up after that Mm i hope so other than that we have there is a student building called spivak named after dr spivak who is was a important an important figure at the jcrs he was like a co-founder Actually, at one point, they called, like, the campus. It was so out of Denver, kind of, like, isolated. They called it Spivak, Colorado. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's quite, kind of interesting. But um, And he's, like, a very prominent Jewish, Jewish figure in history around Lakewood and, like, the west side of Colfax. So we have a building called the Spivak Building. It's now, like, studios, just kind of, like, it's kind of shaped like an old house almost there's like lots of rooms there's like an upstairs but it's just for everybody students on campus that want to set up their work there and just like spend free time there or whatever so that was what on the ghost tour they told us that was the house of dr spivak and like a few other doctors that would stay on campus for the patients they had their own quarters apparently i don't think it was dr spivak but one of the doctors my friend has a studio you go upstairs and there's like this big doorway apparently one of the doctors hung themselves off of one of that one of the door frames and it's kind of creepy because i have a studio in the building and last summer i was there on campus pretty late working on like a final project or something and i was pretty sure i was alone but i was playing music and then my phone died or something so it was kind of quiet and eerie um but i was just trying to keep busy and I kept thinking I was hearing footsteps like from downstairs because uh-huh. it's a very old building and it's like not the best kept up of all the buildings on campus. Super old. You know, since it's a student studios, they kind of have had lots of wear and tear um, sure. over time with paint and everything. So yeah, I was getting kind of creeped out and I definitely heard footsteps downstairs 100%. And I was like, oh, you know, it's just another student, but it was at least 10 o'clock. So it would be a weird time to come in. So I went downstairs because 
I was doing something outside, like spray painting something. And I went down and I was like kind of looking around to see who it was, like who was a friend or whatever. And I couldn't find anyone. So that kind of freaked me out. I felt like <laughs> I definitely feel a very weird energy when I'm in that building, um, especially well. So kind of like being watched almost. But like I said, it's not very like threatening. It's kind of just there. I don't know. It's it's really interesting. So yeah, I think, let's see. And the only other thing I can really recall from the ghost tour is the Texas building in the basement, one of the now like animation rooms. It was the morgue. So they showed us that. And, you know, that's a pretty eerie place to be. (laughs) Great. Let's have the animation Um, in the old morgue. Yeah, I know. I'm like, thank God I'm not an animator. (laughs) But yeah, so on the side of Texas, I found this super intriguing. There's like a driveway almost, but it's super narrow and it doesn't seem like a modern driveway. Somebody asked about it on the tour and they said that that was actually like an inlet for like carriages. Like it was an an original part of the building. So what happened one year, there was like a horrible, horrible snowstorm that lasted like two weeks. And people were, like, quarantined inside of the building because, like, it was impossible to go out and super dangerous conditions. And everybody was getting sick, including the nurses, because, like, nobody could go home or anything. Because they're all just contained in this tight space, couldn't really get fresh air or anything. So I guess the snow was so bad that they couldn't do, like, a standard taking away of, like, the bodies from the morgue. Because people would die at, like, a decently steady rate, I'm guessing. They'd have to dispose of the bodies like regularly, but it was so snowy they couldn't. So what happened was they piled the bodies up in the little driveway <laughs> and in the snow, basically, mm-hmm. in, in waiting so that they wouldn't take up, like, you know, they wouldn't take up. So when the snow melted, it was quite eerie because like all the bodies were still kind of well preserved because of the snow and everything. So yeah, when the carriage came to pick them up, it was quite creepy. I heard there's like there's some kind of photo of like the bodies like stacked up in the driveway and it's um it's weird (laughs) i thought that was kind of intriguing and just kind of like a look at dealing with non-modern times like that and not having technology or being able to dig out snow so yeah it was nature's refrigeration (laughs) true yeah yeah exactly (laughs) kind of creepy but I like the story that you told about hearing the footsteps because that is something that so many people experience. And when I think about a woman alone in her studio, just working on her work, it's 10 o'clock at night. There's a lot of things that would already make you go, okay, there's somebody creeping around in here and I'm by myself that would already cause you some fear. So I would think if somebody was there and they were going to work on something and they knew there was somebody else there, they would kind of say, hey, I'm here. Just want to let you know or acknowledge themselves. And so the fact that you didn't get an acknowledgement and then you didn't see anybody does make me wonder what that was. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah. And I know like some other students, everybody has their own versions of footsteps, literally seeing ghosts, just the whole campus really like when you're on it 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 feels it's very like not like you know it's not a modern place and you can almost feel the history like if you know about it it's super eerie almost Mm -hmm. but it's cool um it's a really interesting like nostalgic for something that you wouldn't really necessarily know for what i'm only 21 years old like i haven't been on this earth very long but i feel a sense of there's just an energy nostalgia and like people's stories that have ended people died there and so many people died there and lots of students 
and faculty especially have plenty of stories. And there's actually books written about it too. They have them in the school library too. And it's full of like photos of before and after, like what it looks like now and later. I actually, there's around the 1950s when the, like when tuberculosis was kind of not as much of an issue anymore, like they found the cure and everything. It was turned into a cancer research facility like the entire campus was, and they built a building that we now like aren't allowed to go in for multiple like safety hazard reasons. I went in there just they I store like old supplies there and stuff, but I went in there recently and they just have rooms like it's obviously like a hospital kind of place, like tons of rooms down a long corridor, and it's very eerie because they have some like really old like some of the really old stuff that they're not allowed to like throw away because it's a historic site. Mm-hmm. There's like old wheelchairs and treadmills from the 60s to 80s when they were testing people with like cancer and whatnot and it's just super eerie and you can tell it's like kind of dingy and not super well kept. Things are kind of falling apart but there's still like doctor's notes on the walls. Wow. And, like, yeah, it's like left as if People had to like leave. They didn't take any of their research or anything. So that is so unique because I've heard stories about that when it's an abandoned property, but the college owns that building. And so they, it's just weird that they've left it that way. And then they're like, don't go in there. Right. Yeah. It's super interesting how they, uh-huh. they haven't like really cleaned it up. But there's definitely this historic site. There's like a lot of rules they have to sure. go around. So it's not all like free use for the campus, unfortunately, I wish. But um, <laughs> The other but thing yeah. that I find interesting is how many nurses' ghosts are being seen, but I'm thinking there's probably not any that died there. I mean, you have a doctor who hung himself, but it makes you wonder right. if this is just a lot of residual activity that you have going on. That's what I would like to believe. think the doctors and nurses that worked on the campus, I think it would probably be fair. This was a very big part of their lives, too. Like, mm-hmm. maybe it wasn't just their day job. I mean, the doctors lived on there, sure. and I'm sure the nurses did, too. I feel like there probably are patient sightings here and there, but it's an interesting, that is an interesting observation because, I don't know, maybe they just start drawing, and, you know, the nurses need to take care of people. They They still feel like there's something to be there for and do a service for you know maybe there are still patients lingering there that they are taking care of I don't know I don't know what show it is there is a ghost one of the ghost shows they did do one at the school down in the um, tunnels so I'm sure if you typed in the right keywords you could find it but I would love to watch some of those and just see like the findings of people who are really in touch with the other world for sure. I wish I had those abilities, but unfortunately not. (laughs) Very cool. Thanks for having me. I was glad to talk about it. Well, thank you so much for suggesting it. It's a place that obviously we would not have known anything about had you not told us. So that's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for listening and thanks for taking my suggestion. Very cool. Well, you have a great rest of your weekend and good luck with your studies. Thank you so much. Have a good one, Diane. All right. Bye-bye, Kate. Bye. So many sanatoriums around the world have reports of unexplained activity and ghost stories. Do those who once died or worked at the sanatorium still hang out in the afterlife? Is the Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design haunted? That is for you to decide. 
Well, that was nice having Kate join us. I'm glad that she did because I couldn't find anything on this college. And apparently there is a lot going on there. Yes, very much so. And it was also a fun little jaunt down memory lane as well. Yeah, going back to our old stomping grounds, that's for sure. I think everybody knows the story. I actually met Diane at a country bar. It was called Miss C's. It's no longer here, but I was dancing and her sister is the one who pointed me out to her. But I used to go to, for two-step lessons and this cute lady two-stepped right into my heart. So there you go. <laughs> We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we did get an email from Leo in Ventura. He wrote, just found your podcast. I'm not sure if it was a pop-up suggestion or whether I heard about it on Beyond the Darkness podcast. On my first trip to Kauai, we stayed in Kapas, just a few miles from the Cocoa Palms. It was October 2014. A lot of the building was there, but the fire was recent and the owner gave tours once a week. We missed the tour due to a hurricane going on half the time we were there. We stayed at the Waipuli Resort, located at the edge of the Palm Grove. My son and I both woke up because of the sound of drums. It was 2 a.m. and no one was doing a luau at that hour. The sound seemed to be going through the coconut groves. It got louder, then faded away. The second time I went to Kauai was in September of 2017. We stayed at the Coconut Beach Resort in the coconut groves only a short distance from the Cocoa Palms. This time, 99% was gone. Only a skeleton of one of the buildings could be seen from the highway. I asked about a tour of the property and was told that there was a cease and desist order on the hotel that bought the property. There's a current legal battle going on about who actually owns it. Locals claimed it back when it sat vacant. Another owner bought it and claimed he owned it. There also were some contractual issues about the original purchase when it first became the Cocoa Palms that have been brought up since the legal battle began. That was the state of the Cocoa Palms a few months ago when I spoke to a local. On another note, I took a walk in the evening and saw a man in the Coconut Grove. He was dressed in a palm leaf skirt, palm wreath type hat, palm arm, and calf bands. He wore wooden necklaces and had an odd-looking walking staff, which I thought was pretty weird because he wore a lot of stuff. It looked almost ceremonial. Then he just turned and walked into the grove and vanished. For the next two nights, I dreamt of this guy. He was older and most of his front teeth missing. It seemed as though he had respect from some, but not from others. He was telling stories to the children in my dreams. It was like he was a shaman or elder who once had a lot of clout. That's how I felt anyways. I asked a few people, but they thought I was crazy. Kauai is the only island I've been to. First time was a family vacation and second time was an early 25th anniversary for my wife and I. Both times we stayed in Kappas because it is central in the highway and not far from the airport. I'm glad I found the podcast yesterday. Well, so are we, Leo. Thank you for listening and thank you for sharing that. So now, Denise, we have a person who listens to the podcast that is backing up the fact that there are some kind of ghostly drums going on there. I know, and that's really cool. And as he was talking, we have not gotten Miss Diane to the island of Kauai yet. And so I so want to get to her. It's beautiful, beautiful island, the Garden Island of Hawaii. I uh, love it. And then what about this weird guy in the Polynesian garb? Apparently he wasn't the real deal or, I mean, if he was a real shaman and then he entered his dreams. Yikes. Yeah, that would be still freak me out. But I guess if you have to get haunted, getting haunted by somebody of Polynesian descent would be pretty cool in my in my book. We started a group for the HGB Running Club on Facebook. So if you guys would like to participate with us, please join us there. And uh, we have different challenges that we've been competing against each other and with each other and motivating each other. You don't have to be a runner to join us. You can just walk if you'd prefer to do that. Or I know Denise does some rollerblading. (laughs) 
And we just wanted to remind everybody, since we've been starting these other groups and such, the HGB Losers Club is exclusive for our executive producer. So if you're not an executive producer, we're not going to let you in. That's why we ask questions when you're going to come in there. And one of the questions is, are you an executive producer? So if we don't see any questions answered, we just automatically close the door. Not to be rude or anything, but that's just a special place for them. And we also shared with the executive producers, we uh, have a couple of projects that we're working on and we announced what those were to them. So. Yeah, so the rough draft of them, but it's really exciting. So you do get some inside glimpses behind the curtain. Yes, it pays to be an insider. We have some reviews to share from Apple Podcasts. The first one is Roger7162. Love this podcast. Five stars. I've only recently in the past year began to listen to podcasts, and thankfully I found HGB. They cover locations I find interesting and discuss and talk of the history involved about the locations. Diana and Denise are perfect on this show, and I always anticipate the next episode. I recommend this to all my friends that are history as well as paranormal buffs, and not once have they been disappointed. Thanks for everything, ladies, and I enjoy every show. Well, thank you, Roger, and especially thank you for sharing that with others. That's how we get out there, word of mouth. And then we have Liz Lucy from Australia, and I have a feeling this is Lisa. Five stars. Ghost oddities and old tales of long ago narrated by two professionals whom are equally respectful and easy to understand. All episodes are well-researched and balanced, always with an intrigue that leaves you satiated yet wanting more. A rare treasure for those who love history, ghosts, and all things mysterious. Delivered smoothly, absent of annoying and irrelevant interjections other podcasts often lean to. Well, thank you, Lisa. We appreciate that. We want to thank you for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Kimberly Robb for her one-time donation. And Denise, I'm wondering what the gravedigger is going to do in these cases. I know for us that we've been letting anybody who gives over a $10 donation, we're letting them come into the Losers Club. Yes. But I'm wondering what the gravedigger does. Does he like bury them for a little bit and then dig them back up? Yep. They were saved by the bell. (laughs) So, uh, Kimberly, here's your bell. Put it around your toes. Saved by the bell. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.